Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. We're back. We are. Everyone seemed to enjoy their special um, Titanic Conspiracies. Yeah. Yeah. We posted an episode last week, previously only available to our Patreon subscribers. Yeah. It's a good one. I forgot about that. It's a good one. So, where are we at? What are we where doing? Where are we at? Wow. Well, I had COVID. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll the, make that announcement. The cat's out of the bag. The cat's out of the bag. I finally got COVID. I hadn't had it before. It was extremely mild. I saw all of your messages. That was very sweet. Um, but yeah, I'm fine. Uh, basically, I had one day of fever and I had mm. a little congestion at the end. But obviously, you're stuck at home. Yeah. You know, quarantining, basically. So I watched a lot of television and movies. <laughs> I did rest and... I had to get back into work mode. Yeah. It was difficult. And I, I have to say, <laughs> it was not pleasant. And I was had sympathy sickness. Yeah. So I was just lazy for no reason. It was kind of like right after Thanksgiving. So you're always kind of like tired after yeah. a trip or holiday yeah. anyway. Yeah. You kind of need like some days. So it, it kind of, the timing worked because I would have probably been like out of it anyhow. Right. So whatever. Um, I'm glad it's over with. Now I'll probably be good to go for Christmas at least. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of the silver lining. But yeah, we have a delay because I, I had a two-parter. So I guess it's annoying timing as far as that goes. That's okay. It happens. You know what? Shit happens. <laughs> yeah. And I would say 99.9% of our listeners are very forgiving yes. of when emergencies happen. I think so. So... Um, it's a rare o- occasion when someone's a little bitch about us having to take it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, I'm, and I'm, not in a good way. And emer- Yeah, not in a good way when someone's yes. a bitch about us having to take an emergency break. But yes, as Desi said, we read all your messages, very kind, and we just appreciate the support. Yes. Do you want to do Patreon? Oh my God. I totally am not prepared for this, but I will absolutely... We did have some people, new people subscribe to our Patreon. I don't know how many of these we're going to get to this. It's, e- we can just do half. We're just going to do half of them. We're just going to cover like, and then we'll, we'll cover the rest of them at a different show. Yes. So if we don't say your name and you subscribed in the past week, we'll get to you. Yeah. We're going to do like the earliest first. Yes. We have Alice, Kate, Reagan, Reed, Michael, Jennifer, Carrie, Chelsea, Cynthia, Marcella, Gwyneth, Devin, Kat, Jessica, Shauna, Megan. Oh, I'm sorry, that's Meg. Nicole, Cami, Gabriella, Leslie, Emily, Llewellyn, Haley, Sarah, Jessica, Eric, Lori, Lillian, Megan, Nayara, Liam, Kara, Hillary, 
Lydia, Joan, Vivian, Alish, Jen, Rache, Jamie, Danielle, Megan, Chrissy, Celine, Mantra, Vanessa, Kristen, Jessica, Amy, Carolyn, Troy, Teddy, Barb, Leah, Joy, Belle, Amy, Jen, Ella, Charlotte, Jordan, Megan, Atticus and Banji, Paula and Che. I did all of them. Well, you didn't because I didn't move on to the okay. <laughs> I did everybody up until this past Tuesday. Good job. I know. I was like, damn. Take it away, Desi. So we're back for part two, two, two? <laughs> <laughs> of Julia Phillips. Where we left off, she had just won an Oscar for Best Picture for The Sting. She's the first woman producer to win an Oscar. So pretty uh, big deal. Um, but her marriage ended. Michael Phillips is her husband slash producing partner. That marriage was on the rocks post-Oscar. And that's where we're at. Things are starting to... I was like, why are you showing me that hamburger? <laughs> <laughs> I just I was trying to quietly put the phone down. Okay. So now it's July 29th, 1974, two days before Michael and Julia's eighth wedding anniversary. Michael officially moves out. They are now separated So this is the same day that Julia's close friend, Cass Elliott, dies of heart failure in London. So she's having not a great day, obviously. She is in a deep depression, and she starts hanging out more and more with two drug-addicted but hot writers, according to her. She refers to them in the book, um, these are aliases. (laughs) One of them is Riley O'Reilly. I'm guessing he's an Irish guy. (laughs) And the other one is Grady Rabinowitz. So those he, are their aliases. He's a he's a Jewish Irish guy. Well, yeah, right. Oh, Grady, Grady, Grady Rabinowitz. So yeah, clearly she's not a writer because these names are very stereotypical sounding. Or I guess Grady Rabinowitz is more unusual. Yeah. So after Cass's funeral, she goes to Del Mar, the Hotel Del Mar, with Riley, Riley O'Reilly. And they began a days-long bender. That includes sex, which Julia describes as um, being like fucking a dead zucchini. Uh-oh. Well, if he's on drugs, it's true. he's probably not doing great, a great dead, sex stuff. I like the uh, description of dead zucchini. You know exactly what it means. Because it's like when you grill a zucchini and you leave it out like all day at the barbecue. And it's just real floppy. Ooh. Or I was thinking also... When you don't wrap it and you just put it in your vegetable drawer, and then mm. at some point it's real soft. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it gets really soft. So things get so bad at this, uh, ex, you know, outing between them. They actually end up using a tampon wrapper to roll a joint because they run out of bamboo wrappers. So like the paper part that a tampon comes in. Yeah, that's very industrious. I used to snort cocaine with the tampon applicator. Really? You shove yeah. that up your nostrils? <laughs> well, it wasn't used. I know, but it's kind of large, no? Fatter lines. Oh. Not, not, I mean, like the smaller, you know how there's like two tubes yes. for the applicator? So like the cardboard tube, not the plastic. I would use the plastic ones. Oh, so that's thinner. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. But it's still fat. It's fat, but yeah, I was thinking of the cardboard, which are much fatter, it's, like a boba tea straw. It was... <laughs> So at this point, Julia's like, 
you know, this doesn't really seem that glamorous anymore. And she wants to go back to LA. They have a huge fight in the car and Julia actually leaves him on the side of the road. She goes to get, goes back to get him and he's like, no. Uh, so then she leaves him there. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. <laughs> so keep thinking. They later decide it's best to just work together and not have dead zucchini sex anymore. Soon after these shenanigans with Riley, she goes to dinner with Paul Schrader, who gives her the advice to only fuck up, meaning people who are more successful than her. Julia's like, well, I've won an Oscar, so there's very few options Mm. in Hollywood now for me to fuck up. She's like, I'm not attracted to Bob Evans. And Warren Beatty is off, off the table as well for her because she's heard from her actress friends that he's a rammer. Uh-oh. So no thanks to that. <laughs> uh, Schrader actually makes her very nervous, so she drinks more than normal. He's a creepy guy. I actually remember, I think recently he was like defending Kevin Spacey. He's like oh, one he of, was? He's like one of those guys. Yeah. He was like, well, technically. <laughs> they go to a restaurant together, Moon Shadows, and when they're pulling out of the parking lot, she's obviously drunk and high, and she almost gets hit head on by two cars. She fishtails into traffic. And he's like, it's okay. I've always wanted to die with a beautiful woman. Damn. Uh, so she's like, thanks. <laughs> she was um, producing his script, Taxi Driver, at the time. And the only way she could actually be alone with him is if she controlled the environments. So the car ride for her was very stressful. I think he's just kind of an intense, creepy guy. Mm. He didn't do anything to her. But she drops him off and she like lets him give an extended bear hug just to keep him happy. And that's like a lot of her stories in this. It's like a woman navigating Hollywood and letting men not feel humiliated or dissed. Like, yeah. So she says that every guy she works with often gives her advice on who she should fuck. But Julia always goes for looks. That's her thing. She likes good looking guys. Enter a guy named Jeremy. Now we don't get a last name for Jeremy. He is just called Jeremy. I think he's like an actor slash model wannabe. He, Julia meets him at actress Julie Christie's place. And Julie is like, I can't wait to introduce you to this guy. He's 23 years old and he's hot as fuck. He's 6'3", et cetera. He is the most beautiful man Julia has ever seen. And she gazes at him pretty lustily as he does lines and pounds booze. He's a junkie and Julia is smitten. (laughs) She, She wants this dude. Now, she's closing deals on her future movies, which are Close Encounters of the Third Kind. She's also working on Taxi Driver, like I mentioned. And she wants to adapt the Erica Jong novel, um, Fear of Flying. So she's pretty busy. But while she's doing all this, she has the side life with Jeremy. She goes to visit his friend in prison. He, According to Jeremy, all of his friends are in prison or are dead. But he's really hot. And Julia, you know, she's having fun with him. He is addicted to heroin, by the way. So he has a more severe addiction than Julia does, according to her. Like, right. you know how they kind of... She kind of ranks it, yeah. That's which I'm sure is very common, right? Like, I'm not that bad. Yeah, Sorry. that's a classic addict move. But things start falling apart on Fear of Flying, so she has to kind of not help Jeremy kick heroin at that moment and focus on her movie career. The script by Erica Jong is terrible, according to everybody in the production. And this leads to a rift between Erica and Julia, who Julia now describes as a cunt. Who looks like Miss Piggy. Wait. (laughs) About Erica. Julia called Erica Jong a a Miss Piggy cunt? Yeah. Oh, wow. 
Would you be mad if someone said you looked like Miss Piggy? Like, I like Miss Piggy a lot. Yeah. I think she's like an icon. Right. But I would know they were trying to be mean to me. Same. Um, so even though she is beautiful, Julia has come to the realization that being a director is where the real power lies. Like producer, she doesn't feel like she gets the respect. So after some potential directors of Fear of Flying fall through, she pitches herself to head of Columbia, David Beagleman. He basically immediately blows her off. Um, He's like, okay, great, but who else we got? Like, what other directors can we do? And every time she tries to bring up being a director, he shoves his mouth full of, of rolls Roll. from the bed, the bread basket. Wait, where are they? Are they at dinner? They're just at like a dinner. Like, I think it's almost at the studio and they have like whatever, like a commissary bringing food. And then he's always like, can we get more rolls in here? So it just becomes this, this scene is very funny. I can't really do it justice. But I definitely related to wanting the roles to come more. Yeah. And basically the conversation just never veers back uh, to Julia directing. Luckily, things are moving more quickly on Taxi Driver. Julia starts working with Peter Gruber on this production. And at their first production meeting, which is at Musso and Frank's, uh, things quickly veer into sex talk. This is like a very common occurrence with producers and men in the business at this time, especially when Julia's around. They all want to like tell her these sex things that are always kind of embarrassing. Like tell like war stories? War stories or just like any sort of titillating details. This one, he tells her that if you put chloroseptic on your cock, you can stay hard all night. But what about the pussy? <laughs> what about the pussy? I don't want... Uh... A chloroseptic coated cock going in my pussy. What is chloroseptic? Is that like mouthwash? That's like the throat spray that makes you right. numb. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Julia responds, really? All my friends use Coke. <laughs> <laughs> That's the safer way. That's the safer way. She says Peter is a nightmare and Julia is disgusted thinking about his cock, erect or soft. I agree. Mm. So, I mean... I feel like these men treat her like she's not valuable to these situations. But Taxi Driver was a very unpopular project and they had to really fight to get it produced. And Julia was really the advocate for this movie, getting the green light. Um, People speak of her being enormously pregnant when they were trying to get this on the go, uh, saying like she was going to drop the baby right there, then and there, if they didn't get this movie, the green light. So she's really instrumental in advocating for this movie. Now, one good thing with Fear of Flying finally happens, Goldie Hawn agrees to star in it, but the director is still up in the air, which definitely makes things harder. Spielberg is feeling um, jealous. He wants her focused on close encounters and not worrying about this Fear of Flying movie, which is very, very early stages of development. And she promises him that Fear of Flying won't even happen until after Close Encounters and does, I'm sorry, is done. So Michael sort of takes the lead on Taxi Driver at this point so she can focus on Close Encounters. One element of her stress is taken away because Jeremy's parents pick him up to help him dry out at their Oregon cabin. She says that he gets in the backseat of his parents' cars and stares at her in the window crying as he pulls away. (laughs) And all she can think, though, is at that moment, I'm free. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe it was a bad situation. That is pretty sad, though. But things quickly devolve on fear of flying, and Erica Jong actually sues to get out of the production. Uh, the deal will will eventually fall through, and I don't get to it later, but Julia actually becomes a character in Erica's second book that is not very flattering. Uh, I'll get to that a little bit later. 
Despite Michael being the lead on Taxi Driver, Julia does get um, dragged into the editing process. And one of the trickiest moments is editing, editing the section where Martin Scorsese's character is talking about what a gun can do to a pussy. I actually mm. watched this scene today because I didn't remember it. I haven't seen that movie in a really long time. But he's basically going to kill his wife, who he takes the taxi to go where her lover lives. And it's crazy to see Martin Scorsese being so filthy. Another problem is Sybil Shepard's acting. Julia claims she was only hired because Scorsese loved her big ass. Wow. Yeah. So De Niro hated her, apparently, according to Julia. But Marty didn't care. And he even does a shot of her big ass walking away in one scene. And Julia recommended cutting it since it had no purpose. And Marty said, no, I'm Italian. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Do Italians love big asses? I guess. I guess it's kind of a lusty Italian thing to or, love like a big ass. <laughs> it's canon. It's Italians canon. love big asses. Look at Mario and Princess Peach. <laughs> Famously big ass. Famously big ass princess. So Julia gets another big win um, on Close Encounters by casting their lead finally. They get Richard Dreyfus to play Roy Neary. They start hanging out, but Julia says he ends up having something in common with Don Simpson. He's a fan of angry fucking. Once at a get-together, someone asked him what angry fucking was, and Richard stood up and began thrusting into the air, screaming, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Julia said after watching that, he went from a maybe to a never. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, that's too much. You know when someone you might be attracted to they they do something very minor and you're like i can't anymore yeah and it's very petty we've usually. all been there so julia also starts hanging out with francis ford coppola a lot he never hits on her according to julia because he's seen jeremy on the cover of playgirl and knows he can't match that type yeah so they have a lot of playful banter he often criticizes her for her ca- cocaine use and she's like it can't be as bad as the 20 espressos you drink per day Totally different. (laughs) So after the New York premiere of Taxi Driver, Julia goes to Francis's suite. Mm -hmm. The next morning, she wakes up next to him in bed, no memories of the night before, but she doesn't think they fucked because she's still fully clothed, even wearing her two small boots. Her feet are killing her. Like she literally cannot walk. It's that type of painful shoe experience where you're in physical pain. She goes to see Stephen afterwards who recognizes recognizes last night's outfit from the premiere and she tells him about being in Francis's suite but leaves things kind of vague because she doesn't really know what happened when she goes to sit on the sofa she's like walking in pain and kind of grimacing when she finally sits and Stephen says Julia ew (laughs) and Julia realizes he not only thinks she was blackout drunk but that she let Francis Ford Coppola fuck her in the ass (laughs) (laughs) he apologizes to her for getting it wrong now Taxi Driver is a huge success but her friend Bert Schneider who produced Easy Rider wasn't a fan years later when Hinckley blamed the movie for inspiring him to shoot Reagan Julia said to Bert, see, it wasn't such a bad movie, to which he responded, it, if it was great, he would have killed <laughs> <laughs> Do we know? I don't know. Um, so Stephen and Julia continue their close encounter casting. They get the kids set. They get Terry Garr as the wife. And they cast 
she actually, Meryl Streep was someone who was up for that role, but they didn't like her. And someone uh, Stephen was horny for, his future wife, uh, ex-wife, Amy Irving, was also up for the role. Oh. Three days before filming started, they cast Melinda Dillon as the mom of the young boy who has one of the first close encounters or whatever. But is the casting of another major role, um, that of French scientist Claude Lacombe, that will make the shoot a living hell for Julia well, that and her drug use. This role will be played by the legendary film director and writer Francois Truffaut. This was his only acting role in a movie he didn't direct and his only English language film. Julia would later say of him, of all the dead people I know, Francois Truffaut wins the Prick Award hands down. So why don't we take a break here? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. 
So initially, Julia was really proud that Truffaut accepted this role. Um, her His letter accepting was gushing, especially about Julia. He said he saw her Oscars acceptance and wrote, you whore a black dress, saying he knew if he ever worked <laughs> in Hollywood, he wanted to work with Julia. <laughs> you whore. The, the you whore a black dress. The letter ended, <laughs> I speak English, worst I write it. Uh, so... Initially, Julieta was like, oh, that's just so French and cute. He messes up words. But later she would come to realize that he spoke much better English than he let on. And she also thought that he was faking his hearing loss in, in one of his ears. So she was ready to adore him when he arrived. But from the start, it was very clear he was an arrogant French film director who got off on fucking with people. Spielberg was not convinced So Julia had a plan for their dinner at La Scala one night. They made a bet she would give up weed and he would give up Twinkies if whoever won, that that was like their punishment. During the meal, she whispered, Francois, in his bad ear, and he turned slightly toward it. Although Stephen wasn't convinced he actually turned his head, um, Julia knew she won because that from that moment on, Francois considered her his mortal enemy. (gasps) So she knew he he, he was busted. Or he knew that she knew he he she he got busted. He's lying. What the hell? He's lying. Julia does have another career high while on the Close Encounters set. Taxi Driver wins the Palme d'Or at Cannes. That's like the Best Picture uh, winner there. Um, so she also realizes, though, her confidence as a producer is very reliant on her coke use. According to her, the way to be a successful producer is convince everyone on your set that you're 10 feet tall. And the only thing that actually made her feel 10 feet tall was taking a little toot. That's what she calls it. That's what a lot of people used to call it. Really? That seems so uncool to me. Uh, a little toot? That's like <laughs> that's like people from the 70s and 80s called it taking a toot. Oh, really? Yeah. It almost sounds like 20s even. It's so stupid. Um, yeah. I'm really jealous of people who were like productive alcoholics and cocaine addicts because I was like not not at all well especially in this industry it seems like everyone in the 70s and 80s was on coke constantly I don't know know how you do it yeah well the cocaine was also helping her with her tooth which was becoming more of a problem every day she had some kind of infected tooth she wasn't dealing with and she would rub cocaine on it it got so bad people on the set started collecting various pain pills for her. They would all just put them in a bowl for her (laughs) to take (laughs) like whatever Percocet and stuff like that to help her cope. Um, She actually leaves the shoot at some point to meet Scorsese in New York. He is filming the movie, New York, New York, and she is cast as a a bit part. The part is called the rich bitch. Nice. So this is like a nightclub tape setting movie. And she's just supposed to appear as a rich bitch. I would love that role. Same. Just walk on looking fabulous. But things go off the rails when she's gone and Spielberg is in a panic. Julia rushes to make her plane back. Uh, Sure, she'll never make the final cut. They basically rush through her uh, rich bitch part. One of the big problems that she had to um, deal with when she got um, back on set, one of the kid actors was constipated. (gasps) So they had to film. (laughs) Imagine them telling everyone. And he's like, Mom, did you have to tell everyone on Steven Spielberg that I can't shit? If Steven Spielberg knew that I was constipated, I'd be mortified. It's embarrassing. So they have to obviously film around his scenes uh, while he waits for the X-Lax and Prune Juice to do their magic. 
<laughs> this kid. This poor who thing. Who is this kid? I don't even have his, his name. name is, it's like his, one of the kid actors. They, she didn't specify him, so I guess that was nice of her. Was it Jodie Foster? No, this oh, is a taxi driver. En- this is Close Encounters. Oh, close so encounter. there's like a few little kids on this movie. So one of them. Hey, I'd love that they've redacted his name to protect... Um, the innocent. The, the, yeah, to protect yeah. the innocent so it's not known that he's yeah. constipated. On prune juice, chugging prune juice to the, get that shit out. This is my <laughs> plea to the <laughs> child actor who's like in his 40s now, right? Maybe yeah. 50. Please. He's probably 40s. Let us know right into the show if you were the child actor on Close Encounters of the Third Kind that was constipated. Your secret's safe with us. You're always welcome on the pod. Yeah, and you can come on the pod. (laughs) Now, Julia, you know, she's been doing cocaine a while. She uh, obviously, like you said, she's managed to succeed somehow, but she does start to kind of come apart on this movie. One of the first things that she does that is sort of out of line. Um, is there is a craft service guy who she had kind of wanted to fire for a while, but didn't really have a reason. Uh, he at some point makes a joke um, after this kid, they tell, t- I guess they tell everybody the kid has constipation. <laughs> and he's like, I haven't had a decent bowel movement since I've been on set because the schedule is so bad. <laughs> she snaps at him and she says, well, maybe you should go back to LA and then you could take a real nice shit. <laughs> So he's like, what are you saying? And she's like, you're fired. <laughs> I'm just imagining this constipated kid watching this whole thing <laughs> and feeling really embarrassed that his constipation was a subject of their fight. A subject of their got And got this guy fired, basically. Yeah, it was referenced. Because <laughs> he's making that joke and he's like, everyone's laughing on set. He's like, I haven't taken a bow. And everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. And she's like, oh, Yeah. Why don't you you go home and take a shit? You're fired. (laughs) Just a lot of shit talk. Now, every time she goes to set, she feels like it's a descent into hell. Not only is it tense, but it's also incredibly hot. I think they're in Mobile, Alabama for this part of the shoot. Um, And Francois seems to blame Julia for everything. They finally finish this shoot in Mobile and Truffaut's final scene, which is the interrogation scene in which Dreyfus screams at the scientist, who are you people? It's like a very famous Richard (laughs) Dreyfus moment. And Julia's back in LA. At some point, Beagleman calls her and he's like furious. After Francois left the set, he went to the arts and leisure section of the Sunday New York Times and gave an interview about his experience. According to that article, Truffaut said it was not difficult to work for another director because knowing the problems of handling actors, he tries to be the perfect actor. I never make a suggestion. I never ask a question. Truffaut, who plays a French scientist in Close Encounters, said the production of the film was badly organized. The picture started with a budget of $11 million, and now I think it's up to $15 million. But that is not Spielberg's fault. It is the fault of the producer, Julia Phillips. Wow. She is incompetent, unprofessional, and you can write that. She knows I feel this way. Sometimes it was so disorganized that they had me show up and then do nothing for five days. What? What? Did you know he felt this way, said Beagleman after reading the article to her? She's like, no, I didn't know he felt this way. If you want to talk about unprofessional, and she went into all the things that he did, getting busted for not being deaf. I mean, this is one of those things where you can see someone's like, well, what about him? Yeah. He pretends to be deaf. And like, you sound like a huge asshole. Right. Because he's kind of famously, like, was deaf in that one ear. Right. Um, but I mean, whatever. So obviously, it's not a good 
it's not good to hear this. Um, she says to him, you know, what well, I've fallen over backwards to, you know, deal with him. Maybe when I did, I was supposed to spread my legs and service him. Maybe that was it. I mean, he did write whore for war in his letter. <laughs> she didn't forget. So she literally gets physically ill after this publication, uh, after, after it finally gets pub- published. And eventually her infected tooth abscess explodes. <gasps> so that always sounds really bad. When people have abscesses. In their teeth and gums. Ugh. Like, how do you... That sounds awful. But she's ripe for another ill-advised affair. She meets a guy named Jack Spratlin. He is a drug addict and a mid-level Hollywood drug dealer who is also a known woman abuser. He's so bad, even Julia's other drug addict friends are like, stay away from him. (laughs) She finally also gets busted. She gets pulled over and she has pot and cocaine uh, in her car, but is basically freed without being charged. She immediately gets high after being released and her reps get on making sure her bus doesn't get out to the public. But Julia is unconcerned. Um, she goes back to Jack and she plays what she calls Coke, Coke theater with him. This is where you, cause he's a mid-level drug dealer, as I said before. So he gets a shipment and they put all the cocaine out and they throw the money on the bed, that kind of thing. It does look fun. No, it's not. It's not all it's up to be. I, I, mean, I just want to do the money part where you throw the money up from the bed. <laughs> that does look fun. But yeah, you're right. Um, Erica Jong's second book comes out. I mentioned that earlier. And there's a character based on Julia. So let's hear about this woman. The character is named Britt Goldstein. And she is described as having no talent, no charm, no intelligence, and just enormous amounts of chutzpah. At one point, she has me in bed with two mafia guys. And at another point, she describes my nipples as looking like wrinkled raisins. <gasps> and that's what made her the most angry. I, I agree. <laughs> um, Michael called her the next morning, her ex-husband, and said, wrinkled raisins? She's like, I guess I had to laugh. It's like, <laughs> she, she, she got you. Um, Julia is a mess at this point, And the Close Encounters shoot still isn't over. They have to go to India to film some scenes, which will also bring Truffaut back into the mix after this article has been published. The shoot is incredibly difficult um, for many reasons. They're obviously in a foreign country. There's a lot of logistics they don't really... She doesn't know what she's doing. The cocaine is really starting to fuck here because you really had to be on top of your shit. She doesn't know how deliveries work, like anything. One crew member is bitten by an insect and has an allergic reaction. They have to deal with that. And it's also even hotter than it was in Mobile, Alabama. Truffaut actually faints on set from heat stroke. And ironically, it is Julia who nurses him back to health. In his state, he says to her, I am so sorry. (laughs) So sorry. (laughs) But they never speak of that again after he gets better. Her friend um, Daniel Melnick later says to her, he would have held the smelling salts back until he printed a retraction (laughs) to what he said. (laughs) Now, on her way back to the U.S., she finds out her mom has terminal cancer. If you don't remember from episode one, they had a very difficult relationship. They weren't really close. Her mom was kind of a bitch and, you know, fat shamey and all of that kind of stuff. On her flight back, she is sitting next to John Peters, who's a film producer, He is shooting The Eyes of Laura Mars with Faye Dunaway, uh, and she basically just spends the whole plane ride listening to him complain about Faye Dunaway. Julia says uh, that John looks how she feels, completely spent. 
Uh, at some point, he says to her about Faye Dunaway, I don't know what kind of life she leads, but it takes hours to light her eyes so you don't see the baggage underneath. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> that's like the nightmare. Uh, I always yeah. feel like that's what I look like. Now, Taxi Driver is big that award season. And Spielberg is actually Julia's date for a lot of um, these award show appearances. And this pisses off his girlfriend, Amy Irving. She's really close to Steven Spielberg at this po- at this period. But things are very tense between them also because Close Encounters is such a nightmare and it's still not done. Um, and Julia's just a disaster at this point. Um, she goes to meetings really high. She's not holding herself together. At, at one marketing meeting... She literally throws the cocaine right out on the table, like in front of everyone. Uh, she says she says she becomes arrogant, and that was like the worst public behavior she had ever indulged in. Um, at some point, she's like making such a scene. She thinks to herself, "What are you doing? This is not your movie." Like, yeah, she's acting like she's like Spielberg in charge. September thirteenth, nineteen seventy-seven. Julia declares this to be the worst day of her life. She wakes up to her boyfriend. Jack flagellating himself with a cord from her blinds. It's his new thing, and he does it every morning, like beats himself with a cord. Like Michael Shannon? Yes. In, in not the actor. <laughs> <laughs> like Michael Shannon in Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, or like that uh, Opus Die, like the... Um, what's that? What's the Tom Hanks movie where he's like the code cracker? The Da Vinci the Code. The Da Vinci Code. The guy in that also is like some Catholic priest who also beats his back, like similar to Michael Shannon's Why do character. Why do that? They're, they're bad people. No, I'm just they're bad, bad boys. <laughs> they're bad they gotta boys? They got to beat themselves. Yeah. She actually bolts out of bed when she hears him beating himself, and she knocks over a tray of cocaine that has <gasps> one gram. Is that a lot? I mean, no, but... It's not? It's not. She said it sinks into her carpet, and she's on her knees crying because that was like her morning coke. And she didn't have any more, I guess. Uh, Jack comes over and puts his hand on her shoulder and he says, today is going to be a very bad day. So he's accurate. Things at the studio are a buzz. There are lots of issues with the movie. Um, people are talking about Julia's behavior. Spielberg is furious about some post-production things. And Julia quickly realizes um, she's being called into this meeting and it's like Spielberg, David Beagleman, and I think Daniel Melnick. And she's like, I'm, I'm being betrayed by the people I thought I was closest to in this industry that she trusted them completely. She's told that she is no longer helming the ship that is close encounters. Basically she has been kicked off the movie. She's fired. So obviously she turns to drugs to get through her pain. Uh, and she's, officially on route to showbiz oblivion at this point because this is bad. She starts to develop a new passion for freebasing, something that she considers allows her to actually do less cocaine. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's what you think at first. And you also think, I'm giving my nostrils and my septum a break. Yes, she does say that. She's like, my nose needed a break, but obviously then your lungs are burning. It opens up, freebasing just opens up a whole other can of worms. Right. So she had a lot of excuses why it was actually better that I was, I was like, Rachel's going to be like, yeah, I've heard these before. Or like, whatever. Like, <laughs> I've said these It was just things. funny because I was like, I was like, okay, so technically you're cutting the cocaine with a lot of things, but if you freebase way more, you're still doing the same amount of cocaine. Like, yeah. I mean, whatever. It's just, it's different, but not better. No. So she also has a new addict boyfriend, a guy she calls Rottweiler. 
um, they bond over finding the very best freebasing recipes. In the book, I don't know about freebasing, but I guess they you combine it with different things to smoke it. Um, so they have all these, um, <laughs> their little cooking recipes. She f- is freebasing so much, she actually gets a URI. <gasps> she gets a bad uh, upper respiratory infection, which means she doesn't get to see her mom right before her mom dies. She can't get on the plane to go see her mother. Rottweiler ends up beating the shit out of her. So she doesn't go to the funeral either because this happened the night before the funeral. So she misses that as well. Obviously, even though they had a troubled relationship, she did want to go there and her family was pissed. Yeah. She eventually kicks Rottweiler to the curb, but not before getting knocked up with his, what she calls his Rottweiler rat. (laughs) She gets pregnant. No. She checks into the hospital to get an abortion and she freebases in the hospital before the procedure. Damn. Uh, She wakes up with her daughter, Kate. Remember, she has a daughter who is young, like under 10, maybe even under seven. Kate visits her in the hospital and Julia decides then and there that she needs to give up this shit for good. She books um, rehab at the Mayo Clinic. Was that in Minnesota? I think it's in Minnesota or somewhere around there. I think so. Uh, She actually books, they have to keep booking flights because she keeps missing her flights. One of them she misses because uh, her cocaine delivery is late. (laughs) That's why she misses her flight to rehab. Nice. Um, She checks in finally. She weighs 93 pounds. Uh, she is a mess. She enters rehab with mascara running down her face. She's wearing a fox fur coat when mm. she comes into rehab. And she's like, she says to her friend as her friend takes her to rehab, how did I get here? And he's like, by limo. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like kind of sad. Michael finally sues her for custody, which is kind of wild that he let it go on this long. Yeah. But I think that it was pretty common. You just didn't take the kid from the mother, no matter how fucked up she was. Um, She does get clean. Uh, I won't say sober, because she's definitely one of those people who was like, I just do quaaludes and alcohol now. Right. And smoke pot. Like, she stops freebasing. But she's definitely still drinking and doing other things uh, as we get into the 80s. She does get a production gig at MGM in 1980. Um, She ends up having a lunch with Don Simpson, who is now running Paramount. He's an absolute mess still. Other friends she has are also still doing a lot of cocaine. And she kind of realizes that she needs to get those people out of her life if she has any hope of staying sober or whatever her version of sober is. And much like her Hollywood friendships, her time at MGM also slowly fades out without much success. Her next big Hollywood meeting is a funeral for a man named Norman Gary. He killed himself after rumors that his client, Daniel Melnick, had embezzled $50 million um, from uh, Columbia, I think. The rumors turned out to not be true. So he did this for no reason. Damn. Isn't that awful? Um, this, I was, I, this is all connected to that whole thing that happens with Beagleman in like the late 70s, early um, 80s. We'll probably do a story on it because it's super crazy. Um, But this is just another blow to Julia. Um, As I mentioned, she's now doing quaaludes. But she's kind of like still seen as someone that no one wants to work with. Like no one's allowing her to produce movies anymore. On New Year's Day 1984, she breaks up with everyone she knows, according to her, and hops a flight to Hawaii. 
With her, she brings a copy of a book called Interview with a Vampire. She reads it in two days, like after nonstop reading it. She immediately calls to see who has the rights. Paramount, where she used to work. And she's like, how did I miss this? Things kind of stall with this one because Paramount wants a ton of money to give up the rights. In 1984, the vampire, I'm sorry, 1985, the vampire Lestat comes out. And Julia is just as into this one. She's trying to get the rights on this. But people are like, well, you don't own the first book. Like, what are we going to do with a sequel? She manages to get the rights anyway uh, and tries to sell it, but it falls through. She does develop a friendship with Anne Rice, saying it is the best relationship she ever had with a woman, like a friendship. And Paramount's ownership of Interview is running out soon, and Julia tells Anne not to give them an extension. So part of the reason it didn't get made was because no one wanted to make this movie that they were like, it's two gay guys with a little girl. Like, that was their basic interpretation of this book. Right. (laughs) I mean, I guess I could see it's kind of an intense book for that period, maybe. I mean, that is what, what the book is. Yeah, but, but it's but it's even when they make it, they kind of cut out a lot of that. Yeah, element. they definitely sanitized it right in the when they eventually made the movie, which I love the movie. It's a great it's movie. So they they get in talks with someone who may, wants to make a Broadway musical version of the book. They want it to star Sting. Oh my god, <laughs> no! As Lestat, yes. Like, can you imagine? I can imagine the horror, like. A desert rose, <laughs> a vampire kiss. <laughs> um, I mean, it, can, it makes sense in the era. Yeah, that you would it, have Sting, right? It does. He's pretty big, and he was like hot. He is kind of hot. Like back in the day, I just back in the day maybe, but I just <clears throat> can't not think of Sting without thinking of that picture of him doing yoga. Well, because he was cooler in the early eighties, mid eighties, and then he became this weirdo. <laughs> Like his solo career? I don't have a problem with Sting. I don't listen to his music. I don't even listen to the police. I just think he's funny. He's a weirdo. He's funny to me. Yeah. Julia starts taking meetings with Tim Rice, who worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and Barry Gibb. Oh, my God. Uh, So those are some of the people they talked to initially. She's also still really interested in the movie potential, and she talks to Ridley Scott about directing Richard Gere also expresses interest in playing Lestat. No, no, (laughs) wrong. Yes. She eventually gets a deal going with Lorimar. She speaks to more people about doing the music, including Daryl Hall. Oh, my God. So I have this passage about Daryl Hall just because it made me laugh. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just imagining like Daryl Hall and or Sting doing the music for this is incredible. I know all of this. I was actually, I was like, I would watch a um, documentary on all of these meetings because they're crazy. I just want to hear the ideas that Sting and Daryl Hall came up with. Right. So Daryl Hall, Julia describes Daryl Hall outside of his music and completely non-charismatic performances. He's actually a pretty good guy. He's a long, lanky body with strawberry blonde hair and green eyes. I have a little trouble with his double chin. I notice he does too. He's always holding his head down. She actually asked him about it. What? She's like, with all the money you've made, I don't see why you don't have that taken care of. <laughs> you know, a plastic surgeon could easily take care of that. And that obviously made him more self-conscious. Um, but he was into her, according to Julia. So she's like, I came close to sleeping with him at the end. When he finally asked at four in the morning if I should send his driver away, I replied, only if you want to walk home. <laughs> 
Wow. So she turned down Daryl Hall, according to her. After a lot more delays, Julia makes another stab at getting the green light for interview with a vampire, bringing in Bernie Taupin and David Geffen. Now, Elton John is kind of brought in, but they're being very delicate about it because him and David Geffen don't get along. Uh, But he eventually is brought in. He's into the idea. And they toast to interview with a vampire on Broadway. Like They're like excited for this. After Queen of the Damned is released, the book, uh, it's a bestseller, obviously. Geffen then is like, we don't want to do a musical. Let's make a film. So now he's like, I want to make a movie version. And Julia's kind of like, it's because of the Elton beef. Like he wants to get out of working with Elton John. And he he gives her the task of telling Elton and Bernie the bad news, which is a very difficult thing for her to do, obviously. Yeah. But he's David Geffen. So I have another passage from the book that I thought was very funny. She said, he is David Geffen, a powerful force in Hollywood, January 1989. He is the Donald Trump of show business. (laughs) These guys take fun out of everything. I noticed the week before, knee-deep in the flu, that Donald Trump had written a letter of protest to People magazine because the week before they had in an article about Merv Griffin said that Trump had been bested by Griffin in the resort's international deal. <laughs> Jesus, was Donald Trump so insecure as to personally write a letter about that shit? Aren't you supposed to be above that sort of thing if you're Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> anyway... Anne Rice actually makes a Bible for the movie and they send it to Stanley Kubrick. That's who they're trying to get to direct the movie initially. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? Like, that's another thing I'm like, oh, I want to see what that would have been. Yeah. But all of this would come to a screeching halt when Julia's memoir is released. She spent two years writing this book uh, and one year spent going over it with the legal team because obviously shit gets crazy in this book. Uh, this book comes out in 1991. It is called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. Obviously, that's my source for this episode. Uh, and as you can see from the past few episodes, it's about her experiences in Hollywood. The book tops the New York Times bestseller list because it has revelations about all of these high-profile film personalities, Hollywood's drug culture, casting couch kind of stuff, misogyny, etc., So I found this really good LA Times article about the book when it came out in 1991. It is by Nina Easton. It's called Hollywood Chokes on Lunch Producer, Julia Phillips' scathing account of her drug-filled years in the film industries has a lot of insiders on edge. So (laughs) this book was a real burn-in-the-bridges type book. Uh, She obviously castigates the duplicity, the selfishness, the bottom line mentality. And a lot of people, including Peter Biskind, who wrote a very famous book about 70s film, I think it's called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Uh, He's like, she captured the era perfectly as only an insider could. Obviously, a lot of people complained, though, that the book was mean-spirited. There were inaccuracies. Um, They thought it was an effort to regain entry into Hollywood. Um, Some of the things she said in the book that I don't think I got to in the episodes, um, she says director Ivan Reitman is the silliest looking person she's ever met. (laughs) She called producer Joel Silver a fat slob and Scott Rudin a previously fat slob. Uh, She called Gold, she really goes on a lot about Goldie Hawn uh, having borderline dirty, stringy hair and having bad hygiene. (laughs) Dude. (laughs) Um, That kind of stuff. Um, so she said, I'm just being honest. 
I didn't write the book to get back in the business. I had to accept the fact that I wasn't in the business before I wrote the book. Uh, And she said nothing she wrote was as mean as the people she wrote about. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now, after reading the book himself, though, David Geffen kicked her off of the interview with the vampire movie, which was her, like, last shot to kind of make it in this industry. I mean, and other friends also never spoke to her again. But Geffen was really mad, in particular about what she said he said about Steven Spielberg, that he called Steven Spielberg selfish, self-centered, egomaniacal, and worst of all, greedy. So he, he insists that this account of her, their discussions are dead wrong. Um, he also gets skewered after a meeting with her on the film project interview with the vampire. And he said, she has so many things wrong, wrong in that book yet she talks about her photographic memory. She takes, about, she talks, takes apart everyone in the community. People are aghast that she would write such an ugly, mean-spirited book. He also goes on to say, I don't know who she imagines she is. She was one of a group of people who had three successful movies, all prior to 1976, but she imagines she is one of the most talent people, talented people in town and the most beautiful. He also says that actor Richard Dreyfuss summed up the feelings of many of his old friends this way. She tried to commit suicide for years with drugs. Now she's trying to commit suicide with this book. So as I mentioned, he fired her from the interview with the Vampire Project. Um, he, sa- he was really furious that she talked so much about all these meetings with like the things I mentioned with different um, directors and, and musicians. He's like, you think there's a safe space here for creative people to disagree after that? Only a person who wants to get fired would do, would do this. She actually refused his buyout check of $7,500, which seems really like small. Low, yeah. So I think she wanted to fight him on this, but I don't think anything much came of it. Um, so Jul- did, did Julia eat lunch in this town again? You might be wondering. <laughs> she claimed she was banned from Morton's. What? But according to Morton's, this is baloney. They claim she was just saying that for a publicity stunt to, to, for her book. So no one knows if she actually was banned from Morton's. Like, maybe she was, and then they're like, no, she wasn't. Right. Like, we don't really know. Although I do think it's a good publicity stunt for a book called with a title that, that it has. Right. So according to Julia, if she hadn't been a drug addict, if she had stayed on the graph the way it was going, they wouldn't have been able to mess with, with, with her. But she she was a drug addict, so they were able to like use that against her. But she was not doing a good job. Like, uh, no, she was a mess. So Julia Phillips did die uh, from cancer. Uh, she died in West Hollywood on New Year's Day, two thousand two, at the age of fifty seven. And she, one of the quotes she said after this book came out, I thought was a very interesting way of looking at it. She said, "You always have to pay your dues." I paid them backwards, starting at the top and going to the bottom. Wow. Which is like a very succinct way of saying what happened to her. Yeah. Because she really did, she did sort of land at the top, like almost miraculously with no background in the industry. Yeah. And just kind of completely free fault. Right. Um, so anyway, that is, that's, that's the end. Wow. <laughs> Good story, Desi. Thank um, you. We're glad to be back. Yeah. We're going to record an after show for Patreon. You can listen to all of our after shows as well as our bonus 
shows that we do over there on patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. You can also listen to our episodes ad-free. Yeah. And we'll see you all later this week for the mini episode. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.